Bible um, or a phone or some device will be looking at the text. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 18 this morning, 2 Samuel 18. Um, typically here at Redeemer, um, about 95% of the time we're working through a book. Um, we've been in 1st and then 2 Samuel for several months now. Um, we're coming to the end. There's just a few weeks left. Um, really, 1st and 2nd Samuel is one book, um, just due to length. It was split for scroll's uh, sake. Um, and so we have been walking through this story um, of, of God moving the nation of Israel from the era of the judges into um, having a king, being a monarchy, um, watching God's faithfulness to his promises while we see the ups and downs of Israel as a nation um, and then as their, their leaders. So we've seen King Saul. Uh, we now currently have King David. And the story is really quite dramatic, right? Like the, we've, we've just seen betrayal. We've seen murder. Um, we've seen assault. Um, we've seen faithfulness to God and disobedience. There's just been a lot of ins and outs and moving pieces. And so just to kind of quickly get us to where we're at right now, um, King David is about to go to war with his son Absalom. And so years ago in our story, um, a son of David, Amnon, uh, raped his sister and assaults her. And David, in his passivity, doesn't deal with it directly. And so the, the sister's full brother, a half-brother of the brother who um, commits the, the assault, kills his brother. Um, so Absalom kills Amnon. And, and then he flees into exile um, over the years. Eventually, um, Absalom is returned to the nation of Israel. And there's this kind of seemingly kind of faux reconciliation where they're around David and Absalom are around one another, but it's not, things aren't right. Um, David offers a kiss, right? There, there's some bowing, but there's not necessarily like this reconciliation. And then we see subsequently that, that Absalom begins, he's an impressive physical specimen, he's charismatic, that he just begins to systematically turn the hearts of, of the men of Israel against David towards himself. And eventually it leads to a coup. And at this point, Absalom is in Jerusalem, right? He's got the, the bulk of the nation, right? He's got the larger army. David and some supporters have fled to the wilderness again. And we're now at a point of confrontation. Right? David, and we've seen he's grieving over this. Right? He is heartbroken. He does not want it to come to this. And so last week as we finished chapter 17, David has crossed the Jordan. He's had an opportunity to regroup because Absalom has taken some bad advice and did not hunt him down immediately. Um, the Lord confounded Absalom in that in taking the bad advice versus the good wisdom. Um, and so we're going to see this morning um, now the conflict between David and Absalom really come to a head. And so let's pick up in, in verse 1 of chapter 18. So then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third one under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. 
But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And so David, he's taken his his army of supporters. He's now divided them up. There's three guys who are going to go out and lead them. He, right, we, we're, we expect this of David. David has been the one who's fought Goliath. He's been the one who fought the Philistines. He's gone out and led the charge. And he's like, I'm going to do it again. And we see wisdom in that the men say, wait, wait, wait a second. This really isn't a civil war. There's not really this, this huge like, fight going on. They just want to kill you. Like they want you dead. They really don't care about us. And so they'll ignore us. Like they can wipe out half of us but they want you. So David, like, you're the king. You're God's anointed. We need you to lead us, and this has to be squashed first. So you stay here. Send support. We're doing this so that you're going to continue to be the king over us. And we see David respond, that he, he's willing to listen and, and sees the wisdom in this. And really, um, in, in chapter 17, the advice that, that Absalom initially got was, Hey, go hard and go fast and go get David. Like, we don't, like, and we'll bring the other people back and we'll be a unified nation. That David and his men are really now, it's the same plan. Go get Absalom and end this. David, if you go, they're wanting to get you. This is really kind of a mono mono thing with a lot of pawns at play. And so David then tells them in, in front of all the people, Right, kind of a strange thing when you're going out to war. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Right, like they're furious at this man who has led a coup. And yet David is still saying, this is my son. So like, if, if at all possible, bring, da- bring Absalom right, to me. Deal gently with him. Let's, let's stop this thing. And all the people hear it. So let's pick up in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people than that day than the sword. All right, so kind of a, a strange picture here. What, what the author is giving us is this kind of big picture, right? 30,000, like, let's look, at the, let's look at what's happening here. And what David has done is, because he's a good military leader, he takes the fight to Absalom. And because he takes the fight, right, he gets to pick the locale. And he takes this forested area, right? Here's why. He's divided his army into three, knowing that they are sheer, like, they're outnumbered right, by sheer force in Absalom's army because he's got the nation. So he divides them, which divides the front, and then he takes them into a wooded area where you're not just going to march. Now it's, it's, it's man versus man. David has the more well-trained army, the more skilled, who have something to fight for in keeping David on the throne. And so they go off, and instead of trying to match sheer numbers, 
It's about courage and skill of the individual. And we see 20,000 die, right? Like that it, it, it's a massacre as these men maneuver in the forest, as they fight for David, right? That, that, that you can almost imagine Absalom's army here is just, it's scattered and it's fearful and, and they're walking through the forest and David's men are just wiping them out. And so we see this kind of large-scale view of what's going on. And then we're going to zoom in on Absalom. So let's pick up in verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. And the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And Israel fled every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep, keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. Now if you remember when we kind of were introduced to Absalom, one of the things that was talked about was his hair, right? That it was like this flowing mane that when he would cut it off, it was, you know, like five pounds of hair every year. And, and he was prideful, and he was charismatic, and he was boasting, and he was impressive. And so there's a comic sense to this, right? As he is riding through the forest, he, he's in battle, that his hair would get caught in a tree, and that the mule, would, right, which is what the kings would ride during this age, his, the kingship rode right out from underneath him. Right? He had tried to take the throne and take the kingship. Now here he is left hanging, and the kingship is gone. And so you can imagine, right, as he's hanging by his hair, he's holding on, right, not wanting his scalp to be ripped off, and going, okay, what, what am I going to do here? That some of David's men see him and, they, and they, they see this comical scene and they're kind of like, well, he's not going anywhere. David said not to kill him. We're not sure what to do. So they go and tell Joab, who's the general. And Joab's like, why did you not kill him? The guy's like, I, listen, I can't win here. Because if I kill him, the king will kill me. Right? Like, and if, if I don't kill him, you're angry. I, I can't win. I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. And you can just imagine Joab in this moment just going, Listen, man, I don't have time to talk to you. And he goes, and he basically stabs Absalom, and so that no one can be blamed for being the murderer alone of Absalom, he has ten men plus himself kill Absalom. Now, Joab is interesting here because 
Joab was the one who brought, wanted to bring Absalom out of exile. And what we see is that Joab, is, he's all about expediency, and he seems to be primarily focused on what is the good of the nation. Like, he feels like David is too emotionally attached to what's going on, right? And so he's like, hey, you're the king. We need an heir back. Let's bring Absalom back. Now Absalom's thrown a coup, right? So now he's going, like, I know David said not to kill him, but if Absalom's still alive, the nation is still divided. There will still be those who will support him. I don't know in David's emotional state if he'll do the right thing or the wrong thing. It'll just be easier if Absalom's taken care of. And so we just see Joab making decisions kind of on behalf of the nation, really ultimately against what David wants multiple times, but seemingly, right, for positive motivation. And so he has Absalom killed. We had been told earlier in 2 Samuel that Absalom had three young sons. It seems that they have perished because he says, I have no son to remember my name. And he is, in his pride, has created his own monument in, in the king's valley, right? Like saying, like, I, I knew this was going to happen. I knew I would be king. And instead, he's going to be buried in an unmarked grave in the forest with a heap of stones thrown over him that would just kind of fade into oblivion. And so it is a quick and unceremonious end to Absalom. Right? That this battle, his men have been routed. He has been killed. And so in 19 through 32, Joab realizes we've got to get news to David. And one of the spies from earlier um, says, hey, I want to take the news. Like, let me run and take the news back to David. And Joab, for whatever reason, says, no, I don't want you to do it. You know, he's killed the messengers in the past. Don't want him to kill you here. And so he grabs a foreigner, a Cushite, and says, you take the news to David. Well, he's, so the, the Cushite takes off. The, the spy comes back and goes, no, I really, I want to do it. And so Joab says, okay. And so the, the two men then race. And it's interesting that the, the original one who wanted to go, the spy, actually beats the other guy there. Um, we see um, in verse 23 that he outran the Cushite. And the watchman of the city, David is there waiting a news, and he goes, hey, I see a guy coming back. And like, that's good news, because if you saw a mass of people, it's the army fleeing. Because there's one person, he's bringing news, it should be good news. And then he says, wait, there's a second guy coming right? We're not sure why we have like a race going on here. So let's pick up in verse 28. Um, then Ahamaz, who was the spy, cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth, and he said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. So he says, listen, we've defeated the coup. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahamaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I did not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand there. So he turned aside and stood still. So basically, the news that David wanted wasn't whether we've won or not. It's, is Absalom alive? He's like, You're not answering that, so stand here. Let's see what this other guy has to say. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Again, like the first, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, 
May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Right? It's, it's a tactful response. Right? But he basically says, listen, he's not here. And may any who try to do what he did will the same thing happen. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And we just see just grief pouring out. Now, imagine here what's going on is like David, like his men have just won, defeated the coup, the, the, the one who's trying to take the throne is gone. It's complicated because it's his son, but he is not celebrating, right? He's not celebrating the win, that the throne is his without someone challenging. And now the army is going to be returning to the city. So we're going to read just the first few verses of chapter 19 to see this initial response. Pick up in verse 1. It was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people still in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came came into the house to the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life, the lives of your sons, your daughters, the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. And Israel had fled every man to his own home. That's the opposing army. So David, right, is making kind of a spectacle of himself, is mourning so that this, the returning celebratory army that's won, like the Lord's anointed is still the king. We have done what the Lord has wanted. And then it's like, oh, be quiet. Because the king is sad over his son to such a point that they're coming back ashamed in their victory. Like David's about to lose what he's just regained. And Joab, who has been a major player in this story, comes to him with some words that could get you killed. Like he talks to the king, right, like it's his own son. Or like that he's the king. And he basically says, you are mocking our army. Men who just fought for you, people who went out and died for you, you would rather them all be dead and Absalom be alive. You are going to lose it all, David. You think you've had it rough? It's about to get really bad. you got to suck it up dry your eyes and go out there and tell them good job. Right? It, it's, it's such a strange scene. And we just see the, tur- the, the, the turmoil that David is in emotionally is he knows he's the Lord's anointed. He knows that he's the, the leader of Israel. And that what Absalom was doing was wrong. 
and yet he knows his own culpability in the fact that Absalom led a coup in the first place, that his sin had a place in this, and that Absalom was dead, right? We see David's regret here, and that he is not leading, right, as a king right now. He is responding simply as a father, right? Just the complexity of it. And I love, right, that First and Second Samuel and, and all of Scripture, it lets us in on these moments, right? That it doesn't whitewash it and say, and the victory was won. But that we see the pain and the emotion and the difficulty. And so as we look at this scene, right, that is that David be, re, being restored to the throne, as we know that we only have like four and a half chapters left in Second Samuel, we're going to begin to kind of wrap this section up. Like, what is it that we take from a story like this? It is victorious on one hand, but it's painful and emotional on the other hand. I think the first thing we just need to note and be reminded of this morning is that there are deep and far-reaching effects and consequences of sin. Right? They are far-reaching. Last week we talked about it in, in regards to that we have an enemy, and our enemy would like to destroy you if possible, and if he can't destroy you, then he'll distract you. For those in Christ, if he can't destroy you, he will distract you from making much of Jesus, from being on mission, for serving him. Like David has drifted into sin. This goes back to him not being at war when he should have been at war, being on the rooftop and looking at Bathsheba, lusting after her and then assaulting her. Right? Like, and so he has been distracted for years now due to his sin. Right? You have to know that in that moment, as he's thinking about taking her, he's not thinking about losing children or losing the throne. He's not seeing the far-reaching implications of that moment. In the same breath, we see Absalom in his pride being destroyed. David has been distracted. He has drifted away from honoring God. Absalom, though, in his pride, in his sin, in his vengeance, in his lack of reconciliation, in his treachery, has been destroyed. He doesn't leave this scene. And so you can imagine that David is going, like, me too. Like, I'm guilty too. I've received grace and mercy but I too could have lost my life in this. And so we can look at it just as David who's distracted and Absalom who's destroyed, but would we not forget the, the implications here? 20,000 plus people are dead because of a fight between a dad and a son. Right? Absalom's lost his life. David is tormented and has heartache. Like you, They could never have ima imagined the ramifications of, of singular moments of sin. So church, would we be reminded this morning that your sin will find you out? It is not a secret this morning. It could be a secret to the rest of the world, but God knows it. Right? And it would be a grace for our sin to be exposed because on this side of heaven, for our sin to be exposed, then we are still able to repent, to confess, to receive mercy and grace that far outruns our sin. And yet we have an enemy who is whispering in your ear, you can't tell anyone. Don't let them know. Don't let them see. They'll think differently of you. Genesis 4, 7, right? As we, we see 
um, Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 7 says, listen, sin is crouching outside your door looking to pounce. Would we not so look at sin as just kind of like this personal thing that I struggle with or that I deal with, right? That has, I'm only, if I'm hurting anyone, I'm only hurting myself. Right? Like David would have said, yeah, maybe I'm hurting Bathsheba. Maybe he could have seen her family in the midst of that. He never would have thought 20,000 people will die because of what I'm doing here. You're going, okay, that's a little extreme. I'm not a king. 20,000 people aren't going to die due to my sin. Right? But our sin is seeking to destroy us because we have an enemy who wants to use it against us. That our pride will lead us to fall. So church, would we be encouraged by the Spirit this morning that our sin is seen and known by a holy God who is calling us to confess it, and in that confession that we will find grace, that we will find mercy that far outruns our sin, that we can find rest that our sin does not provide, peace that our sin does not provide, that we can be known and healed and accepted, that whether your sin finds you in this life, it will find you for sure before God. Like when you stand one day before him in judgment. And look at David, right? Like, as he starts off, right, defeating Goliath, anointed, not killing Saul. I mean, like, just this, like, shining example of a biblical character. Right now, he's kind of tarnished, right? Lost a little bit of the luster. There's a realness to him that we can appreciate, but you're not, like, just, like, celebrating David anymore, you're being reminded that, yeah, this isn't our rescuer. This isn't the king who's going to make everything right. And yet in 2 Samuel 7, we're told that it's from David's line, right? He'll have the throne forever, right? That, that there are all these beautiful promises made to the people of God because of David and his line. That God is the one here who's being faithful, who's keeping his word against all odds, right? You don't send a teenager out to fight a giant. And yet David wins. When the king and his men are hunting you in the wilderness and you have very little supply, the king should win. And yet God protected David. And now here, against a massive army of the nation with just your few supporters and fighters, right? Absalom should have wiped David and his men off the map. And he doesn't. Like that against all odds, God is continuing to show himself faithful in keeping his word. Church, would that remind us that the reason we can confess our sin this morning is because against all odds, Jesus defeated his enemies. That when he was against Rome, the greatest power in the world, when he was fighting, right, death, that Jesus wins. That, That death could not hold him down that Rome could not quiet him, that in his perfect life and his obedient death was then a resurrection, and a resurrection then that led to the birth of the church, that we are beneficiaries of 2,000 years later across the world in a different culture, language, context, that against all odds, God is keeping his promises and bringing his sons and daughters back to where they belong with him that he did it in the life of David, and it was messy. And he's done it through the life of Jesus, and now he's doing it in the life of the church 
which again is messy, that he's keeping his words and he's showing himself to be faithful and he's saying, don't carry your sin, bring it to me and I will give you rest and forgiveness and peace and hope and joy. One last thought and we will we'll finish with this, but listen, there's a common phrase that gets thrown around all the time that God won't give you more than you can handle. And it's not true. It's not in Scripture. It's not biblical. You will get more than you can handle. Okay? We see that in David here. Like, David is not impressive in 2 Samuel 18. You're not going, look at this man who's the king. You're going, David, man, pull yourself together. And yet, for many of us, we can, this is the David that we would, like, resonate with. Crying on the floor while people around are going, dude, we don't know what to do with you. We're like, yeah, David, I get this David. I didn't fight Goliath, but I get this David. Like that God is working, and David does not feel confident. He's not going, I can handle this. We are seeing David come apart. Listen, I want you to hear from, this is Psalm 55. And we don't know for sure that this is about Absalom. But listen to this, beginning in verse 12. For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and is in their heart. But... I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan, and He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. Listen, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant his speech was smooth as butter, right? Imagine um, Absalom at the door turning the hearts of Israel. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. Like you can see David crying out, thinking about Absalom here, going, listen, son, here's what you did. And here's how God handled it. I did not handle it, but I will trust God. Church, if we believe that God will give us nothing, that nothing more than we can handle, where are we, where are we like drawn to look then? Inward. I've got, to, I've got to muster more strength and more energy and more whatever and more wisdom. I've got to do it because God won't give me more than I can handle. But if God will give us more than he, we can handle, and He does, we're forced to look to Him. And to say, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. Whom will I trust? It's you. I can cry out all the day, and you'll meet me. You'll work, and you'll move. Listen, you will get more than you can handle to teach you to trust. To teach you dependence. Often my children will look at me and say foolish things. Right? Like daily. 
like, I'm, I'm good, I got it. And you're like, I, I know you don't have it. Right? I can create a situation here where I can prove to you that you don't have it. Right? And, and you're trying to figure out, I don't want to scare you, I don't want to break you, but you need to know you're not as strong as you think you are. God does the same thing, to remove our hands from believing that we're in control, that we can handle it, so that we will trust Him and depend upon Him. David is not the hero. Jesus is. In God's faithfulness, Listen, in, in, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth in verses 8 and 9, and he says this, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul's not going, hey, I had it. I was good. God won't give me more than I can handle. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Right? Paul is saying, listen, you will get more than you can handle, but there's not more than God can handle. And how do we know? Because Jesus is alive. He's defeated death. Our enemies have been vanquished. And He's in us through His Holy Spirit. He's given us one another, and He's given us His Word. So if we turn even over to chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians for verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. All right, this is God. My power is made perfect in weakness. Thou, Paul, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? Like that God is faithful to us when things are good. God is faithful to us when things are a train wreck and we can't handle anymore. That He is enough and that He is sufficient. And so we see, right, that this, this, the promises of Scripture tell us that God, we turn to Him in trouble. Places like Psalm 46.1. We see Joab here bringing truth and community. David wasn't pulling himself out of this pit. He needed truth from someone else. Church, God has given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit. But He's also given us one another. We are not meant to carry everything alone. And we will get situations and circumstances in life that will destroy us if we are not trusted in the Lord because it will be more than we can handle. Would we be a people that would turn our eyes and our hearts and our minds heavenward and not inward? that we would find peace and hope and comfort knowing that there will be a day where God will wipe every tear from your eye, where He will restore all that was lost, where everything will be made right and holy and perfect, and you will be with Him forever, and you will look back and say, light and momentary was what I faced compared to the surpassing weight of glory when your faith has been made sight, and Jesus will be faithful to you until that day. And He will sustain you until that day. His strong hand will hold you. Your strong hand will fail you. Nothing will be wasted. Nothing. And we know it because Jesus is alive now. He's defeated death. He's defeated our enemies. And so as we go into a time of prayer and of worship, 
Jesus is hearing your songs. And He's seeing your heart. And He's ministering to you. And He's bringing hope and peace and encouragement. Hopefully He's bringing out confession from you, right? Of things that need to be confessed this morning. Hopefully He's bringing grace and mercy and peace to you as well. Of reminding you, hey, you can take your hands off that. I got it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder that even King David, your anointed, who wrote Scripture, who defeated Goliath, who fought off animals, who didn't kill Saul, couldn't handle everything. That he needed your grace and mercy and faithfulness. That he needed community. That he needed the truths of Scripture. God, would we not be so foolish prideful and arrogant to, loop, to walk through this life believing we've got it. But that we would take the tools that you've given us, your people, your promises, your spirit, and the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and walk in faithful worship of you, knowing that in our weakness that you're strong, that we don't have to have it all together, that we can be David weeping on the ground you see us and you know us. God, would you give us the courage to, to confess sin? Lord, to those who need to hear it, God, to you, that we would find healing and grace that would meet us in that severe kindness of yours. Lord, we want to lift up praise, knowing that it's with the words that we will sing now, but it's also with our hearts, our minds, and with the lives we live this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.